Uh, our purpose this morning is to understand uh, why God's grace, which is amazing, is not a license to sin. We can't just do what we want. Let's pray. Father, we want to come before you uh, knowing that this is going to be a challenging uh, talk for our lives, not, not so much from understanding point of view, but when we get down to the nitty-gritty of our lives, there are hard things we've got to confront about ourselves. And so we pray that you would do your work in us, that by your spirit you would take your word and cut the things that need to be cut out, that you would remake the things that need to be remade. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so here's the question. If, if forgiveness is for free, if that's what Jesus is offering people, free pardon, life eternal with God without having to earn it in any way, shape or form, uh, no matter what you've done, no matter how sinful you've been or what you've become, you can be forgiven for free through Jesus Christ. That's, that's been the message of Romans so far, isn't it? But if that's true, why does it even matter what I do and how I live? Why does it matter if I try and battle sin in my life or not? Why would it matter whether I follow God's commandments or not? Uh, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is like uh, playing a cosmic game of Monopoly and you land on community chest and you happen to pull the get out of jail free card, you know, you're thinking, beauty, I can do whatever I want. I can buy Mayfair, I can do whatever. And when I get to Judgment Day, I'll play the card and God will have to say, all right, come on in, you've got the card. <laughs> uh, what, who cares what I do with my hands or my eyes or my lips or my feet or what I do with my body or whether I go to church or how much I sin it up? I've got the card. I can get out of jail free. I mean, imagine if we uh, went over to the local school over at Ingleburn Public over here and I would made an appointment with the principal, Mr Green, is a really good guy, uh, and I wanted to suggest to him a policy to help, help the kids of Ingleburn understand how great God is and his generosity and mercy and uh, understand the gospel a bit better. Um, uh, they don't do the cane anymore in schools, and some of you might think that's a good thing, some of you might think it's a bad thing, uh, but they do detentions. But I want to, I want to suggest to uh, Mr Green a free grace policy that... Um, uh, we want to help children understand generosity and mercy and forgiveness. So, so, Mr Green, why don't you introduce a grace system to the school where as a gift from you to the students, they can get out of any detention for doing anything uh, if they just trust in the generosity of the headmaster. Um, do you reckon Mr Green's going to go for it? Uh, I reckon he'd laugh because he's a good sport, and then he kicked me out of his office. <laughs> Why? Isn't that what God's saying? <laughs> Wouldn't it? Because it would be a disaster for discipline. But isn't that exactly what will happen if the gospel of Jesus Christ is true? We can do what we want. Perhaps you've been asked that question by a sceptic who's tried to put you on the hook and, you know, ha, yeah, answer this one. Maybe you are the sceptic. And you're thinking, yeah, I knew it was all too good to be true. Or perhaps you're just someone who there's some area of your life you know deep down isn't pleasing to God. And you've used this kind of logic to get out of fighting it, to live with compromise, and you've justified yourself maybe for a long time by saying God's into forgiveness, I'm saved by grace, so what does it matter? He'll forgive me, 
You know, he's like a mum will just wash me again. Uh, you know, why does it matter? If forgiveness from God's entirely free, you don't have to pay for it at all, why can't we just do what we like now as believers? And that's exactly the issue that Paul's discussing here in this uh, rather long section before us. Why the incredible forgiveness and mercy of God, which is incredible, uh, and it does pay for our sin and enables us to, to come into God's family and God's heaven, uh, why it doesn't give us any licence to sin. And he's addressing the issue here because he knows that's the natural objection. Yeah, it's a natural objection. That's exactly right. To what he's been saying about how magnificent God's love and mercy and forgiveness, that no matter what background, no matter how much you've stuffed up, in the death of Jesus Christ and the cross, you can come back to Christ. And Paul comes at the issue uh, by asking two versions of the same sort of question, but they're all, they're all around the same topic. Uh, you see the first question appears in verse 1 of chapter 6. What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, if Jesus wants to do forgiveness, I, I can give him plenty more opportunity to do that way more if I just sin it up. <laughs> if I really start to muck up, won't he just pour out more and more of his love? Think how great that would be. I get to experience more love from Jesus. Think how great that would be for Jesus. His reputation as, as a forgiving, merciful God. And it's a perverse question, but it's phrased in order to make Jesus look good. The second version's in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace? Slightly different question, same idea, but this time, who cares if Jesus looks good? If I don't have to obey God's rules to be saved, well, frankly, I'm just going to do what I like, right? Uh, there's no consequences. There's no incentive to change. Different question, but same gist. Doesn't God's grace mean I can sin all I like? Well, the an- we know deep down the answer is no, and he says the answer is no, absolutely not. It's emphatic. Uh, verse 2, by no means. Verse 15, by no means. I mean, if he was an Aussie bogan from Ingleburn... In the 80s, he might say, no way, man, no way. <laughs> but why no way? How can there be any sort of logic to it if, if it really is free? And I reckon the answer he gives is actually quite mind-blowing. It's an answer which, as I've tried to come to terms with it myself for the week, is absolutely shocking on the one hand and absolutely wonderful at the same time. Shocking and it's wonderful. But it's also one that is completely alien to our normal ways of thinking and speaking even as Christians. Uh, even for, for us, I think this might be fairly new territory. There's a new category that Paul and God wants us to think in. See, the reason that God's grace is not a licence to sin, says Paul, ready for the answer? It's because you've died. You're dead if you're a Christian. The picture he uses right through the whole section is of a deceased person. Uh, A deceased person has ended the struggle. A deceased person doesn't go around doing what they like. A deceased person has ended their former life. And he says that's actually what happened when you became a Christian. 
That's his answer. Don't you realise you've died? Now that's very strange sounding to us, isn't it? Because most of us don't think we've died. <laughs> I mean, you might look at the person next to you and they're dribbling drool at the side of the mouth and you think maybe they have and wake them up. But, but you know, we're breathing, we're here, we're singing a minute ago, we're, we're alive. I became a Christian in 1990, uh, but I don't think I've ever described 1990 as the year that I died. And if I did describe it that way, I'd raise it for your eyebrows, wouldn't I? You know, Hi, I'm Joe. I died in 1990. Great to meet you. <laughs> but that's exactly the way Paul speaks here and the way that he wants us to think about ourselves. Uh, see, pick it up from verse 2. See there? By no means. You know, shouldn't we sin? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. And on and on he goes. Again and again he uses all these different phrases. We died with him. We, we were buried with him. We were united with him in his death. We, we were crucified with him. You've died. If you're a Christian here today, a believer, then when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you died. You died. You died with Jesus on the cross. You were crucified. It's a very strange concept for us to get our head around because we so easily think of Jesus 2,000 years ago and we're here today and we're entirely separate. But that's a misnomer. Paul's been challenging already, particularly at the end of chapter 5 where we left off at the end of last term. He says, don't you realise there is this intimate connection between Jesus and you as a Christian believer across time? So that what happened to you, to him 2,000 years ago impacts you today. You are totally, intimately connected with him and with everything that he's gone through. You are as connected to Jesus as a believer as you are connected to Adam if you are a human being. It's that strong. And that means in our passage that Jesus' death on the cross profoundly affects each one of us as Christians because when he died there, that was the moment that we died on the cross. We were crucified. Now there's a slight difference. He died for sin. We died at the very same moment to sin. He died for sin. We died to sin. And what's fascinating to me is if you look at verse 11, Verse 11, I think, is the major turning point in the whole letter of Romans because it's the very first command that he's given. Five whole chapters, he hasn't said that Christians should do anything. It's all been about what God in his amazing love has done. You know, we've mucked up and we've ruined ourselves and our world and our relationships and with him and with others. And God in his mercy has given his son and has atoning sacrifice and it's all been about what God's done, but now he comes to here and 
There's a command. What do we do now? And it's not really a command to do anything. It's it's strange. It's a command to use your mind in a particular way to do a calculation. Now, who loved maths at school? Uh, Yep, about five of us. (laughs) Who hated it? Who's never used a calculator since? Uh, he, He says you've got to do a calculation. Verse 11, see it there? In the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. You've got to make this calculation. You know, Use your iPhone or your Android if you have to. Get an old-fashioned calculator out if you have to. If you're from the 8 o'clock congregation visiting today, use a slide rule. Um, but make this calculation. I am dead to sin and I live to God in Christ Jesus. Every impulse from God I will respond to. Every impulse from sin I am to say no to. I am to count myself as dead to sin. In fact, that's what God's grace is really all about. It's not just about giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card for Judgment Day that we can play and say, ha, sucked in, God, I'm in. It's about liberating us from the whole pointless life, useless existence, which was self-destructive, God-hating, destroying community, soul-destroying and perverse. Just go back and read chapter 1. God, in his grace, has rescued us from that. He's paid the penalty, yes, but he does so much more in his grace. He's in the business of remaking you as a whole new person, a new being in Christ, no longer in Adam. That's the point. But he gives three illustrations to demonstrate how it all works, to show you why the logic that says, if God's so gracious, I'll just do what I like, he's going to forgive me anyway, why it's so foolish and evil and will destroy you. Three illustrations. Baptism, slavery and marriage. And no, they're not connected. Uh, (laughs) um, So baptism. Paul says the symbolism of baptism is not just of being washed clean, which 1 Peter talks about in chapter 3, but it's even more than that. It's a symbol of death. It's more obvious if you think about full immersion baptism, which you know the Baptist church down the road does, uh, going down right down under the water and then coming out again. And I suppose if you were to hold the person down a little bit longer it would be even more a symbol of death, right? <laughs> the longer, the more the symbolism's there. Uh, I baptised three of our wonderful night church members a few years ago in a backyard pool, uh, Philip, Olivia and Lauren. And uh, I imagine if you, if you were watching a video of that day and you paused just as, say, Olivia went down under the water and you press pause and I'm holding it down there. <laughs> You start to feel a bit uncomfortable and you're like, press play, press play, you know, kind of thing. Um, that's the image it's, it's, of that Paul's drawing here. It's like drowning. But then you unpause the video and she comes up for breath and 
It's like being resurrected. Baptism is a picture of death and as you're baptised into the name of Jesus, you're saying, I'm with him. I'm identifying with him. I'm united with him in the death that he died and the life that he lives. His death is my death. And now the life I live is his life. It's transformed, new, lived to him. The second illustration he uses is slavery, uh, the slave-master relationship. Now, slavery has had a terrible history and uh, in many ways it's an abomination, but uh, it's a good picture here. Slavery is not a volunteer kind of thing like a job where you can quit. You know, you don't like your boss, well, see you later. (laughs) Uh, A slave is owned and has to obey their master. And Paul says, don't you realise that before coming to Jesus Christ, you were actually a slave to sin. Uh, You lived in a slave-master relationship with sin. It ruled you so that when it clicked its fingers, you did what it said. It had you under its thumb at its beck and call. But now you're to see yourself as dead to the mastery of sin and alive to the mastery of righteousness and of God so that when sin clicks its fingers, you're not to respond to it. And so don't keep going back to the mastery of sin as if it owed you anything. The captivity you were in has been broken. You were rescued from that slavery. It's not that we'll never be tempted to sin. We will be. It's not that we'll never give in to sin, because we do. But the enslavement by this master, the imprisonment has been broken. So it means you no longer have to sin. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the fact that when you're tempted to sin, God always has a way out so that you don't have to do it. You will still sin, uh, I presume. There will be struggles, there will be compromises, there will be failures. There will be need to say confession next week at St Barnabas and in your own private prayer time, all the way up until heaven. But it is not inevitable that you will sin in a particular way. You are not compelled to sin. You do have a freedom now. You are freed to serve Jesus. It's hard to understand because we think and our society thinks that we're naturally free anyway. In fact, freedom is being able to do what you like. Jesus set me free. I'm free to do what I want now. We're all about freedom. Uh And in fact, we ironically think that the command to follow Jesus and do something in particular might be a loss of our freedom, that living as a Christian is a kind of prison. But it's exactly the other way around. Let me show you. I went and got a goldfish just for today. Here you go. Uh, There you go. And I've named it Gary after the last minister. Uh, (laughs) So I could keep him here in my little bowl. There you go. Hello, Gary. He doesn't like me touching. Oh, anyway. But what if Gary here started thinking... You know, if I'm in this prison of this water, he's looking around here thinking, 
It'd be so freeing to be out there with all those people and in the church, sitting in the pew rather than up here in the pulpit uh, kind of thing. Um, what if I could just get out of here? I'd be truly free. Uh, look at the wonderful world. Oh, let's find out. Hey, come here. <laughs> no, he's, he's running. Oh, got him, got him. All right. All right. Oh, are you free now, Gary? <laughs> it's okay, it's a piece of carrot. <laughs> you wanted it to be a real fish. <laughs> That's a G, right? Yeah, yeah, we've gone up to PG or M or something. <laughs> if it was a real... That's not freedom, is it? That's death. He might flip around for a while, but it's death. Freedom is to live the way he was meant to be, in water. Um, imagine it the kind of way around here in Romans. You were interred in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in World War II. A pretty brutal experience if you've ever heard stories or met anyone who's been through that. Horrible. Uh, watch Bridge Over the River Kwai if you want to see a good movie about a bit of what it's like. The commander of the camp rules your life in everything and he's not kind. And that's like sin being your master. Not a real great way to be, is it? It's going to destroy you. But imagine you're busted out by the PO, by the um, of the POW camp by the Allied forces. How bizarre would it be for a freed person from that camp to go? Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep paying attention to what the the commander says, which is what happens with Alec Guinness, right, in the movie. He's so twisted. I mean, in the past you had no choice. You were you were enslaved. You were imprisoned. But why, if you were liberated from that, would you go? Would you say, go back and listen to him and, and lock yourself back in the bamboo cage in your own filth and squalor? Listen to how he says it here. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires and passions. It is not your master. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life. You've got a new master now. That's the whole second half of the chapter, a wonderful master uh, who, who has brought you out at great cost and whose service, as the prayer book says, is perfect freedom. God's service is perfect freedom. That's how to be a free human being. So baptism, slavery, third illustration, not related, marriage. Marriage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but in chapter 7, he uses the image of marriage. He says, you know, a woman wants to remarry some other dude. She can't do it if she's already married to someone. You can only have one husband, otherwise you're committing adultery. But if her first husband dies, she's free to remarry someone else. And so says Paul, you've died to your marriage to sin and to the law, and you're now free to marry Christ and to live the new way of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, slavery, marriage, three ways of illustrating it that Paul uses here. 
As we come to apply of it, I want to ask you, what, what, what is the Christian life all about? Or more personally, what, what is your life as a Christian going to be all about? What should it be all about? If someone was to come and do a study on you and they, they watched every moment of your life for a week, what would they conclude drives you? What's the, the purpose of your life? What, do you, what would they be forced to conclude your life's about? Let me take you back to this verse 11 that was the, I suggest is the turning point of the whole book. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its desires. Do not offer the parts of your body as sin to, as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the, each part of your body to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law but you're under grace. I want to apply it by saying two things. First of all, sometimes Christians can be divided into two camps. Uh, some who are too optimistic and some who are too pessimistic. Uh, I used to be optimistic, but I became a pessimist. But anyway, that's uh, nothing I could do about it. Oh, well. uh, <laughs> I wonder if you could work out which one of these two you are. Are you the optimistic Christian in regards to sin or the pessimistic Christian? In regards, the optimistic Christian reads this stuff and says, you know what, I'm free. I'm free from sin. Jesus, sorry, Joe. Joe says, I, I could, in theory, live for a whole week, in fact, my whole life without sin, and you know what? I'm going to. I'm going to get to a state of sinless perfection. I can get full liberty, and it's all victory, victory, victory. I am not going to face these struggles anymore. Uh, there's a story told about Charles Spurgeon's that famous Baptist preacher in the 1800s, he, uh, he met a man who, who came and said, I've reached that state of sinless perfection. And without a second thought, Spurgeon, who was drinking a glass of water at the time, dumped it over his, his head and the guy got irate and lost his temper and Spurgeon said, ah, I thought the old you was in there somewhere. <laughs> he just needed a glass of water to revive him. <laughs> And we're going to see as we read on next week that it's not all victory over sin. There is still a struggle, a bitter struggle. Uh, there's still failure until Jesus returns. It's a war that we're engaged in. There's still going to be a need to pray prayers of confession, like I said, and throw ourselves on the mercy of God because we are in a war. And so the optimist is wrong. But at the other end of the spectrum are those Christians who are too pessimistic and they're wrong, just, just as wrong who say, and I feel like I'm probably in this camp, you know, I'm stuck here in this body of sin and I haven't been raised yet and I expect I'm always going to fail and so I'm not even going to fight. I've given up. And if I do fight or try a little bit, it'll be half-hearted and only because other people are watching. But I'm not going to win. And we just resign ourselves to our old way of life and our old habits, and we live compromised. We live defeated. And perhaps we feel guilty and depressed, 
or even worse, we're hardened by sin's deceitfulness and our consciences have been seared. And that's just as wrong. There has been a decisive break in the chain. It's not perfectly applied. We're not in our full resurrection glory yet. We will be one day, but there has been a break. There really is liberty now. There really is freedom. You don't have to obey sin anymore. You only had one penalty of death and it's already stung Jesus and it can't sting twice. So don't let sin reign. Whatever you battle with, and I know because you're a human being, you battle with something. It doesn't have to win tomorrow. It doesn't have to win the next day. Fight. Fight. You don't have to make the same compromise again tomorrow. You don't have to if you're a Christian. Why should you give in to a master who is no longer your master? Why would you go back into the cage? And anyone who tells you that you'll have to compromise with sin and that's all you're going to ever be able to do is lying to you and Worse than just lying to you, they are leading you back into a slavery which will lead you to destruction. You'll be the third soil in Jesus' parable of the soils who's choked out by the weeds. Um, It's the warning at the end of this chapter. He says to live with sin's mastery and to reject Jesus' lordship means that you haven't actually been saved. You're, You're still holding on to the clothes while the allied forces are trying to drag you out and you're like, no. No, I'm, I'm, that's where I live. And you will face judgment. He says the wages of sin is death. You will earn it. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Life then, yes, but also a transformed life now which begins and flourishes under his lordship and under his grace. That's the first thing. Second thing I want to say by way of application, and and I love this, Paul gets very specific in verse 13 when he says, don't offer the parts of your body to to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Think about the parts of your body, your hands, uh, your eyes, your feet, your lips, your nose even. Maybe you've got a big honker like me. Yeah. (laughs) He says, don't use the parts of your body to serve the old master. Why should your hands do the things that that sin tells them to do? Why should your eyes look at things that sin's telling you to look at? Why should your feet take you to the places where sin wants you to go? Why should your lips say things that sin wants to come out of your mouth? He says, no, present yourself to God saying, you set me free, God. I can choose who I serve. I'm no longer under this compulsion to sin and I want to serve you, Heavenly Father. And I want to use my hands and my feet and my eyes and my lips to serve you and to serve you only. Just think about those parts of your body. Uh, How have you used your hands this last week? I mean, have you used them to build something? Who are you building it for? Are you using the type something? Maybe you were 
Maybe you're typing a Facebook post. Was it constructive? Was it just to get a laugh? Was it a criticism that just because you wanted to vent? Did you use those hands to hit something or someone this week? You know, who did you punch? What did you punch? Maybe you used your hands to shake someone else's hand. Maybe you refused to. Whose hand did you shake? And why were you shaking it? Was it to ingratiate yourself with them, to get something out of them? Or was it out of genuine love and affection? Or greedy? What Think of your eyes. You know, what have your eyes looked at this week? Or who have you made eyes at this week? Think of your feet. Peter Ludgate from 8 o'clock. He's been laid up in bed or he could get out of this one. Uh, he's got a cancer on his toe and he's uh, got infected and he's uh, bedridden. But where did your feet take you? And where did you choose to go? And were you going there to serve God? Think of your mouth. What came out of it this week? Was it good and wholesome and uplifting and praiseworthy? Or was it something else? It's very practical, isn't it? You're thinking really of everything about your life, the decisions I've made, uh, whether to honour the Lord Jesus or whether to rebel against him. In the past, God says your hands, your feet, your mouth, um, your eyes, they were all under the dominion of a hostile power, an enemy of God. But now you're free. So how are you going to use your freedom? Why not say to God, here I am. I've got some freed hands now. I want to use them to serve you. I've got some freed eyes and some freed lips and some freed feet. And I want to present them to you, Father God, you who united me with Jesus so that I died with him to my old life and I know I'm going to be raised to Him with him in eternity and I want to live for you in everything now. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these Chapters of Romans, which, which are a real mindset shift for us. Help us to think of ourselves as dead now, dead to sin. We thank you that when Jesus died, we died. He's taken the penalty, but he's also died to transform us. Help us to look forward to our resurrection day in the future where this will all be perfected. And help us to realise we have been liberated from sin's mastery. And so to use our freedom to serve you, our Lord and our God, our great King, take our hands and use them for your purposes. Take our lips and make them instruments of your praise and of speaking only that which is good and wholesome and right and uplifting. Take our eyes and use them to look to you rather than look to evil. And take our feet and use them to carry us into your world using lips that speak words of life and which sing praises and encouragement and point people to you. Give us those feet shod with peace that we might carry the gospel to your world. This wonderful gospel of grace which comes through the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.